Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm your host, Ian Andrews, joined by Emily and Megan as ever. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. This was a fun reading section this week, I thought. Very plot-oriented, very sparkly. However, those moments of plot, it occurs to me, seem to come in as palate cleansers from these weird little digressions. <laughs> starts our passage for the day and is about Gorbo House. What did you guys make of this? Why does he spend so much time describing the particulars of this weird old tenement house that Valjean sets himself and Cosette up in? I was going to ask you the same thing. I... I'm not sure I know. I, the couple, I had to like look up a lot of details because I don't know a lot about Paris. The one I was able to. Your like, discipline is amazing to me. <laughs> I just, I read it and I go, huh. And I move on with my day. <laughs> and then he tells us that the Paris that he's describing doesn't exist anymore. So I'm like, oh, more unnecessary information. I just, you know, move along. Well, that part, the, that part reminded me of the Battle of Waterloo section yes. where he talks about how the battlefield doesn't look the same as it did that oh. day and how like there's kind of like this man-made change that's taking place and that's maybe to be regretted. I don't know. He kind of seemed to be a little down on industry. I don't hmm. know. Maybe that was like, he doesn't say that he's just describing the fact that this neighborhood has been transformed in his own time because of the railway station. But like, I kind of caught a tone of maybe nostalgia about that too that maybe like yeah industrialized progress is the sign in the 19th century of the oppression of the lower classes that he's on about that maybe this mechanized tear is part of the problem i don't know but i did note that the house gorbo house he says it was between let's see i'm not going to be able to say it <laughs> But it was between the madhouses of the, the women and the men. And he names two buildings mm -hmm. that I can't find. Hold on. on. Here it is. Page 429. Oh, Added yeah. to the melancholic atmosphere, you were conscious of the being of being between La Salle Petrier, Petrier. Mm -hmm. whose dome was just in sight, and Bicetre, whose gate was nearby. That is to say, between the madness of women and that of man. And that's quite literal. These were insane asylums one for women or hospitals one for between one for women, one for men. Huh. And the whole area is like the area of l'hôpital, right? It's the, it's the hospital. So madness, illness, this is where Jean Valjean and Cosette come to rest for a while the the hospital thing kind of makes sense right they're healing from trauma and we find that out on like a spiritual level mm -hmm. going forward the madness of it i'm not sure neither am i although it puts me in mind of reading something like moby dick where there's these long long passages of discussions of whale anatomy and whaling as a practice and all of that and people read through it and go why why is this here but there's a reason there is a reason for it 
I can guess at some reasons, actually. There's a big, long story about the guy who owned this house before. Gorbeau was his last name, but only in a circuitous way. His name was actually Corbeau before, which means crow. And he was one of two lawyers, I take it, in the area and got a lot of grief for being named Crow because the other guy's name was Reynard, which means fox. <laughs> so there uh-huh. was this whole like poem about the two of them, and they were both embarrassed, and they wanted to change their names. So he changed his name to Gorbo, and his house kind of looks the way that that story makes him look. His house is two-faced or two-named, and there are there's like a doorway that looks like it matches the house, and then this flamboyant window that looks like it doesn't match the house, and all kinds of like two-sided imagery. Yes. Which I think, I mean, this is an English majory thing to do, but that does seem to be <laughs> symbolic of what Jean Valjean is trying to do in recreating himself. But there are, there's always like a residue of the person that he was before. So he's recognized in all of his different iterations. Even in our section that we read today, the guy, I can't remember his name, who he discovers covering his melons in the, the nunnery mm-hmm. at the end of our passage, remembers him from a previous, a previous fake identity. He remembers him as Father Madeleine, right? Right. Megan, that's so helpful. That's like exactly what I was looking for. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And that makes me think of one line where we're told that it's while Jean Valjean is being chased by Javert and it says he had two bags. He had mm-hmm. his convict bag and he had a saint bag and he could yes. reach into either one as he pleased. Mm-hmm. And in that same section, there's this line that I don't know what it is in the French. So this could be, you know, not, it, it could be an aspect of translation that doesn't actually count, but he's described as being hunted and, as he's like laying this trail for Javert, he doubles back on himself. And it's um, the way that it's called is, I thought it was interesting. Here it is. It's page 444. It is what is called in hunting terms, a false return to cover. Mm. And obviously the, that means like a false trail being laid for the hunter, but like, there's at least in the English, there's a sense in which you could understand that from Jean Valjean's perspective, right? A false return to cover. He thinks that he's taking himself back into cover, but this is false. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that continues as as Hugo compares the house of a man to the house of God. Here, Jean Valjean's coming to cover to a place he considers to be safety, but it's very much the house of a man, and a man's dwelling is. He says, Hugo says that it shares the brevity of his existence, that it's going to be short-lived and insufficient. But God's dwelling maintains part of his eternity. And it feels like, yeah, that's going to be actually a salvation for Jean Valjean. If he could find the house of God, that's Mm. where he would really be safe. But here he is in kind of a halfway situation. Also Mm. thought one more, one more point that I noticed about the house of Gorbo. It has two different addresses, two different numbers. And so does Jean Valjean. He actually receives a second prisoner number. So it felt very much like this is a big, long symbolism, which you have to take a moment to understand. But I do think it, it it bears reflection. That's awesome. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? The house that looks super wonderful on one side and has the creepy little door. Exactly. I love that. Well, call me gobsmacked. I'm. <laughs> I was not anticipating any of that. I, no, I think but... it's a great entree into our next section, though, which is the first obvious one where discussion was going to take place about what Emily called the recovery from trauma. 
mm-hmm. that Valjean and Cosette are both undergoing. And we get a picture of it from Valjean's perspective kind of first and then from Cosette's. But where I want to start this is with a question about the dawn of virtue and the dawn of love that Hugo talks about. We've already been told that Hugo's working with the idea, God is more than just. But we have here two different visions of the work of God in Valjean's life. The bishop, who's called the dawn of virtue, and Cosette, who's called the dawn of love. And one of the two of those actually enables Valjean to stay to the straight and narrow despite all of his reversals. And it's interesting to me that it is not the dawn of virtue. What do you guys think about that idea? I hadn't thought of it till right this minute, but I think that's that's profound. It's not a moral code or a, an evidence of truth that calls him to the straight and narrow, but it's it's human relationship and a reason for living. It's a little complex, though, because I don't think that he could have had the awakening of the dawn of love without the awakening of the dawn of virtue. I think you're right. And then because she wouldn't have trusted him. Yeah, that is what led him to want to become a different man, which he has to start on that journey, even if, as we've been talking about, it's like dual natured and he might be trying to do something with himself that's not possible. Yeah. And and uh, for, furthermore, sorry to interrupt you, but furthermore, I think when we hear the the idea of virtue, a human being is prone to think of virtue as being just in all one's ways. But the kind of virtue that the bishop actually displayed for Valjean, the kind that inspired him to want to be someone else, is mercy. Well, that's the other right? thing I was going to say, is that the dawn of virtue actually was an act of love towards him, yeah. which then allows him to love another. I love that idea of love creating more love and like overflowing and affecting multiple relationships. I think actually his love for Cosette, Jean Valjean's love for Cosette, gives him a new perspective on the rest of the world that keeps him from bitterness, which is what actually was dragging him down into a real prison within himself at the beginning of the story. On page 436, it says he spent hours watching Cosette. Life seemed full of promise to him. Men seemed good and just. In his thoughts, he no longer reproached anyone with any wrong. He saw no reason now why he should not live to a very old age, since this child loved him. So it's not just the loving her, but it's the receiving love from her in its innocent state that gives him a perspective on mankind that I've I've never seen in him before this moment in the story. He's been very jaded and cynical with good reason. And Hugo goes on to say he could be worse off than he ever was before, given what just happened with Fontaine. He could have such a a worse perspective on both men and women after that event, but he doesn't, all because of this, because of love. Also, let us not forget that he just casually like went back to prison and then had to escape and swim through the icy cold waters again. again. Yeah. <laughs> this dude is old. Like, I feel like we forget that part. He's not that old. He's only 55. He's 55. I was surprised to hear he was that young, actually, on account of the all white hair all in a moment. I don't know. My impression is that, like, the average age of a human being in that era (laughs) is not very old. Maybe that's just the infant mortality rate driving down the average or something. But Yes, I think that's true. So, yeah. So the line that and we can talk about it from Cosette's perspective a little bit, too, maybe, although it's a little simpler because she's just a little girl. But I mean, the kind of trauma that she's recovering from is similar to Valjean's, although the circumstances are far different. She's never she's never loved anything. And every attempt she's made to love something has been rebuffed by the evil that she's been surrounded by. And so 
this is for her as well, a first experience with human love. And, and it's the most natural since she's a little girl and he's an old man for her to consider him a father. And in that way to also look to him as God, which I think is going to become important later in our Hmm. section for the day. But he ends this meditation with this awesome line. He being Valjean, he loved and he grew strong again. Alas, he was as frail as Cosette. He protected her and she gave him strength. Thanks to him, she could walk upright in life. Thanks to her, he could persist in virtue. He was this child's support and she was his prop and staff. Oh, divine, unfathomable mystery of destiny's compensations. I think it's going to be really significant thematically, too, that he is very aware that his coming to be a father to Cosette is preordained. It comes to him as a gift from God the Father. There's all kinds of imagery about that. So he's very explicit. But on page 434, Cosette remembers that moment in the woods when Jean Valjean takes her hand in the darkness. And he says that this coming of the man and his participation in her destiny had been the coming of God. We're going to see that same image of holding hands in a dark situation again as Jean Valjean and Cosette run away from Javert. And he extends that image to be Cosette holding Jean Valjean's hand and needing nothing but to trust him. And Jean Valjean, in turn, holding the hand of God and following him without knowing where they were going. And I think that 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 three-step relationship is going to be really growing over the course of our story. I expect it to grow. Well, I want to talk more about that when we get there. But let's talk about what starts the chase first, which is, funnily enough, money. And I think that's really interesting. Like there's a kind of spiritual riches that have been bestowed on Valjean by his circumstances, this relief from bitterness, this reinterjection of love into his circumstances. It's mirrored by the fact that he's also filthy rich uh, for his era, Mm -hmm. having had a profitable life as Monsieur Madeleine. He has now sewed into his coat, into the lining of his coat, all of these thousand franc notes. And it's in taking one of those out, and then later when a when an actual coin rolls across the floor and makes noise, those are the things that alert his landlady to him not being exactly who he says he is. And I wonder if there's some imagery at play there that um, because he also walks around the neighborhood giving alms because that's just who he is. That's what his life has taught him to do. He was in need, and so now he serves the needs of others instinctively with no thought to his own safety. And so the spiritual riches and the physical riches together make him stand out like a sore thumb in this neighborhood that he's in. And it's what gets him. It's what gets him caught. Right. Yeah. There's something. I mean, it's a blatant irony that Javert sees the man who is uh, the beggar who gives alms. And his immediate thought is, ah, yes, a convict. Whereas, like, this is a person doing good and sowing wealth throughout the neighborhood and Javert's instinct is to shut this man down. What do you think that is? I mean, why, why is that Javert's instinct? I mean, is he, is he just a monster or is there something basically human that Hugo is describing in Javert? Well, he says that he, even before he thinks it's Jean Valjean, he thinks it's a crime boss who's using, who's giving alms because that's what crime bosses do to, to cover up their, ill-doing right it makes them look good so he sees it as an act an, an illusion He's suspicious of an act of goodness yeah. and we know that he thinks that once a convict always a convict that the there can be no good impulse in them and so he is instinctively looking to construe every act as as one of wrongdoing 
And I think it deserves to be said that he's more bloodhound than man. Yeah. And he is suspicious of everyone who might be Jean Valjean, even though he's fairly sure Jean Valjean is dead. Like he's going to hunt this guy until he, Javert, dies. Yeah, there's something unnatural about that, I think. Obsession. On the other hand, and and I've been trying to figure out how to say this, this might not come out very clearly, but I think we should be wary of caricatures, even even if this is kind of a romantic novel, because... Well, because the novel has been around for such a long time, like there's probably nuance worthy of plumbing in every character. And I think Javert is no exception to that. There wouldn't be any need for a book that says God is more than just unless that was the primary way that human beings instinctively looked at God. And I I identify with Javert in some ways. He lives in a world where whatever you get has been earned. And if you haven't earned it, you do not get it. And that extends into the spiritual realm as well. You are right with God to the extent to which you can be good. You can keep his law and maintain justice in all of your actions. And so the the figure of Valjean is completely incomprehensible to this man. And that, I think, should give us some compassion, actually. I mean, he's a great villain, and you love to hate him. But also, he's trapped in a world with no grace, not only that, but like, think of it if you like, even today, if you met Javert on the street, like, he's really good at his job. He's doing a good job. He's with the law. He has, we're told been he's one of the best detectives and, ever. Yeah. He's a great detective. He's been decorated and promoted. He found a, a convict, like a, who was labeled a dangerous convict and brought him back. If you were to like see him on the street and then see someone who was an ex con, like, who do you think that you would actually be more inclined to put your trust in? Probably Javert. Yeah. So having seen this little contrast in character, Hugo's going to emphasize it by giving us two versions of the chase. And this is really the rest of our section is this big, long chase where, where Valjean and Cosette are running through the night trying to find a place to hide. And Javert, who has set a trap for them, is pursuing them and also has a man at the end of their, of their run lying in wait. So what are the differences that you see between these two accounts? And Megan, this might be this might be where your comment about about who's holding whose hand comes back around. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Valjean first. Well, what I noticed in reading Valjean's section is that the emphasis is entirely on his ignorance, but this feeling of assurance. Assurance in the face of no evidence at all. He's sure that no one is following even though there's evidence around every corner that he's being followed every step of the way. He's sure that all of these turns are the right ones to take and that there is going to be escape and freedom. He's walking into a trap, we find, but he is sure in his heart every step of the way that this is the right way to go. This is absolutely not just he has a, a this vague feeling in his heart, this is the right way to go, but he's absolutely sure that this is the way that God is leading them. And in the end, God leads them right into uh, a nunnery, <laughs> right into a secret, forgotten, perfect hiding place in into the, the actual just, house of God. <laughs> well, and not just any convent, but a convent that he himself like organized with what's his name? The guy who was crushed by the cart. Fauchelevent, that's his name. He knew, like, mm-hmm. he knows this convent. He just forgot about it. Right. So I thought it was profound that we get to see every step of the way this assurance in the face of ignorance that is borne out in the Mm. story, that this providence he trusts in is really leading him and Cosette. And I think that 
I don't know. I have nothing profound to say about that, but I thought that might be the point of this, at least this first perspective. I think you're right. I think you're right. And the other way that it sticks out and to me is that his uh, another aspect of his perspective on the world has changed. When he was Monsieur Madeleine, he was absolutely tormented by a sense of decision. How my life goes from here on out comes down to what I do here and now with this issue, right? This person has been accused of being me. And now I get to decide the fate of thousands of people in this town. And then when Cosette joins his life and looks to him as a father and even as a god in some ways, right? His perspective totally changes. It's like the childhood of 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 Cosette and and his meditation on being her father and her relying on him for everything, even unconsciously affects the way that he looks at God and he begins to act like she does towards God. Yeah, and it doesn't mean the absence of of despair. I mean, I think <laughs> despair is like the ultimate version of what I mean, but discouragement, right. fear. Right. He there's that scene at the beginning of our story where he's been cast out by everyone and he's out in a field and it's raining on him and he looks up at the sky in despair. Yeah. We get another sentence where he looks up at the sky in despair in this moment where he's cornered. And what happens after that is that hope comes to him with an idea. That's what the, the next line mm, says. Love that. Hope comes to him with an idea. So instead of I'm raging at this sky that I think is empty, he's he's calling out to someone he believes is there. Mm. And I think that you might be right. It's the presence of someone depending on him that has built this, this trust. If Cosette called to him and asked for help, he would answer. And he's got an understanding now of, of a loving relationship and is leaning on his own in a way that he couldn't before. Speaking of despair, though, the opening of the chase where before the first intimation that Jean Valjean gets that he is in trouble is when he goes to give alms to the beggar he always gives alms to. And like there's this moment where he the beggar looks up and he feels like he's seen the face of Javert. And even though we find out that he has, in fact, seen the face of Javert in that moment, I think that there's, there's kind of like a, a psychological significance to that section that's kind of interesting that like he he's going about his day just giving alms doing the right thing and then there's like this flash of, of the law or like of a condemnation or of trouble that interrupts his good doing and then continues to haunt him through the chase that seems kind of metaphorically significant for yeah. his own psyche yeah, I think so too. Well, and the the foil relationship between Valjean and Javert continues to get deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, the way as we move to Javert's side of the chase, their attitudes are completely different. Even though Javert seems to be the one who is on the side of right, he thinks that God is behind him because God is justice and he is God's arbiter of justice. And yet, the way he pursues Valjean is with a sense of self satisfaction with the illusion of control of every aspect of this chase, it's devoid of faith is what it seems to me. There isn't any faith in the way that Javert pursues his, his job. Also, I, everything we've said about the relationship between Cosette and Jean Valjean is true and beautiful. However, there is also kind of this underlying I want to, I'm going to use the word sinister, but that's also like the extreme version, like, like despair. It's like the extreme right. version of what I mean. But there, I don't know, there's like a, like a tingling, something not great under the surface. I'm thinking of the line where we're told that even 
Great love can be egotistical. And Jean Valjean thought to himself, well, at least she'll never be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, first of all, rude. Rude. <laughs> right. Rude. Excuse you. <laughs> Here we go again with like Maria. But like second, there's like a codependency kind of situation, I think, maybe developing under the surface. You mean in that line, he's hoping that she'll never be beautiful so that no man ever wants to take her away. Yeah. He has identified her as the source of all of his well-being from Mm. here on out. I mean, it literally says something like that, right? He knew that he would never be alone slash sad again because he's like drawing life from Cosette. Yeah, I think you're right. Sinister is too strong a word, but I noticed that too. And it makes sense. This man has been adrift his whole life. He's looking for something in the way of human relationships that's solid. And um, it's no sh- it's no shock that he turns to the first, the, the dawning of love in his heart as that solid thing. Yeah. We're, he's Hugo's setting up more conflict for later, I think. Well, I just, that seems to be Jean Valjean's main conflict throughout every stage of his journey is he is misidentifying the good thing in his life for the ultimate good. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that the relationship that really is going to satisfy him, obviously, is the divine one that's pursuing him through the story. But that is kind of a an elusive presence. We're looking for something tangible here in our human lives. And of course, we associate mm-hmm. all good things with the best relationships that we can see. But it reminds me again of that image of the Gorbo house, that it's two things at once. It's the house of man, but then there's also it the front of it it said that the front of it looked like a hovel like a house of man that's falling apart but the inside is gigantic like a cathedral and we get the same picture in the nunnery the nunnery is described as seemingly deserted like an uninhabited dwelling but it's full of supernatural presence yeah. so this seems like an empty place but actually it's full all of these images seem to underlie that thematic journey that Jean Valjean is on he's looking for something that really is satisfying but it's elusive you find it in the opposite of where you would expect it yeah you're right and i think that that tension is drawn even more sharply in this weird contrast when he enters the the convent gardens first he begins to hear this otherworldly angelic music. And when he goes to explore and figure out what's going on, he peeks in the window and sees a nun at her prayers laying in crucifix form on the floor face down. And it is somehow terrifying to him and looks demonic instead of angelic. But what we know as readers is that she's at her morning prayers, right? There's, it's not demonic at all, but it is ascetic. It is, it is, oriented around self-denial and suffering. Mm. And isn't that the the dual nature of a relationship with God? On the one hand, he is he is to be trusted. On the other hand, he doesn't promise that you'll be comfortable. And so in placing his trust in this God, Valjean has to be aware of the fact that he might not get everything that he's looking for, that his road might be a very, very difficult one, even if his hand is safely in the hand of God. I think that that Hugo is really sharp with his imagery here. Yeah, the literal line is he thought the music was inviting him to the gates of heaven and instead he found himself at the door of a tomb. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you just knowing the general shape of this story, that is perhaps a very 
like maybe subtitle worthy of this story, right? Yeah. The gates of heaven are the door of a tomb. Yep. Well, and he goes so far as to say that the door of the tomb has a house number on it, which I think brings it full circle. Mm-hmm. Is this is this tomb that I've discovered myself in one with a with a number on it? It makes me think of him. Yeah. Am I a place of resurrection or am I a place of death? What's going on well, in me? And they're you know? and they're so connected. I mean, it sounds like a pat comment, and it's it is very romantic, you know. But there can't be a resurrection without a death. There simply mm-hmm. can't. And we've seen that in we've seen several cycles of death and resurrection in Valjean's life. And I would be shocked if we weren't in for several more. <laughs> shocked. Oh, you guys, okay. So I have to ask you. Similar to the Gorbo house, I'm hoping you can help me think about this. During the chase and in the description of where the convent is, Hugo just goes, he does it again. And I confessed earlier that I just really struggle with the whole I'm going to describe to you where we are now thing that authors do. <laughs> and he like is very self-conscious about it. He goes on this long digression about how, you know, I'm an exile so I haven't seen this neighborhood in a long time. So forgive me if I'm not describing it right. And now I'm going to describe it in very, very great detail. And then he comes around full circle and is like, and now I've described it in great detail so that people. <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, I didn't get it. Why? Why? He goes into such great lengths again. It's like the Y shape of the streets and like He's taking great pains to self-consciously place himself in a physical location and then like meta draws attention to the fact that he's not even aware necessarily like that's a memory for him as an author. Yeah, I, I maybe this isn't right, but I see two reasons for doing that. The first one is very practical. He wants you to have a clear picture of the trap that that Javert has laid for Valjean well, and the I structure went, of the streets. Have a clear picture. <laughs> the, well, the structure of the streets. <laughs> he failed on point one. The structure of the streets in this area makes it so that he's run into a blind alley with no with no possible exit. So that's a, that's a practical reason. But I think the other reason is connected to a line about halfway through the passage where he talks about where Javert went looking to recapture Valjean after the the Montfermeil episode, mm-hmm. and he says Paris is where everyone goes who wishes to to be drowned because it's a drowning that saves. And what he means is the city by its nature is constantly moving and constantly shifting like a whirlpool. Even the, the names of the streets and, mm-hmm. and the, the places where people congregate change as railroads go, you know, railroad depots go up in different parts of the city. And, and so I think any pains he takes to describe Paris are attempts to prove to us that what he's saying about the city and its nature and what it does to people is true which is to say that it is it is a maze it is a constant mm-hmm. shifting maze and you can get lost you there. can get lost there and and it's it another weird dichotomy between getting lost and being found for Valjean because what he's trying to do is get is is lose himself so that the law can't find him and if he can ever pull that off he has then found the peace and the security and the the life that he's looking for. So anyway, I, that that's what it says to me. What do you think, Megan? Yeah, I think I don't have anything to add because that's what I think as well. I think that it's always about, there's another word besides dichotomy that I'm trying to think of, paradox. paradox. It's always paradoxical mm. with Jean Valjean. Even at the end of this, the the end of his perspective where he runs out and realizes it's Fauchelevaux out there covering his melons. <laughs> 
the reason that he rushes out of the uh, out of safety is that he believes Cosette is dying. And because he's he loves her so much, he would do anything. He doesn't think anymore. And he he rushes out of the shed and walks directly up to basically the only person he can see and reveals himself. Yeah. Yes. So that's a paradox as well. All he wants in life is to be safe and hidden. And what he does in order to save them is, is reveal, reveal their hiding place. Yeah. Yeah. Another another paradox in that moment is that the way he does it is with a different kind of riches then ultimately saves him. He walks up and he says, hundred francs. And basically says, I will pay. I will pay. I will pay. I, I am rich. I will pay for my safety. And what actually saves him is the currency of human relationship rather than actual physical currency, yeah. because the man that he meets is someone that he has saved in the past. Yeah. And it's upside down and backwards again there, because at the end of their little conversation, Fauchelevent says to him, you have forgotten a man whose life you saved. You are ungrateful. Yeah. And I just think, well, that seems weird. The line. guy whose life was saved should be the, the grateful one. And yet it's it's turned on its head. You should always remember someone whose life you saved because they always remember you. Yeah. Don't be ungrateful of the memory that I carry in my heart for you, which is one of gratitude. Well, and of being known. That was Don't profound. be ungrateful that you are mm -hmm. now. Known. I wonder if that is what Hugo is doing on the meta level. I'm thinking the the section I was talking about with describing the streets of this neighborhood is called the chapter is called the map of 1727 or something like that. And he is it's like he's trying to to capture this one moment in history when the like yes the streets don't look like this but it, there is a map it's in 1727 it does capture it this moment isn't lost we can reveal this moment if we look in the records what we need to do is like capture these moments like that chapter where he describes the the state of paris at that moment it's like he's trying to pin down something that's elusive or like transitory if mm. we just like put a put a pin in it right here then maybe we can not lose it so what is there to say about Javert's perspective on the chase? We've already covered it a little bit, but he is how we end our section for the day. So is there anything added to our understanding of Javert and his character by the way he walks out this chase? I thought it was interesting that he was compared to the great conquerors, Napoleon, mm. Alexander, Cyrus, etc. The one great blunder. This is his, his march into Russia, right? Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Javert is brutal. Again, he's brutal with himself in acknowledging his failure in losing Jean Valjean. It was because he was so certain that he was going to catch him. He made all kinds of errors. There was a loss of precious time. He kind of dawdled on his way up the street because he was gloating in his victory too soon. He's, he's brutally honest with his failures in that moment and says to himself, who is perfect? I thought that was an interesting question to ask, given that he has tried up to this point in the story to be perfect, and that's the only thing that will do. So he's honest that he isn't perfect, but he's he's questioning. I don't know. What did you guys think of the tone of that scene? It's on page 474 if you need a reference. He's maybe doesn't have very much self-sight in that area. It says that he's he goes back to the prefecture of police, crestfallen as a spy who has been caught by a thief. Yeah, I mean, the reputation that spies had were not, it wasn't very good back then. You know, now we think of spies as James Bond, like cool, heroic. But 
but in its early days, a spy was not an honorable thing to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's something you're right, Emily. There's something dishonorable about the, the wicked pleasure he takes in lying in wait for. Well, yeah, he, he plays with cat and mouse with him a little bit. He's delighted to have him trapped and takes his time because he wants to play with him. It makes me wonder if Victor Hugo was beaten at a game of chance or something by one of his school friends and is still trying to teach that guy a lesson. Listen, you, don't gloat. <laughs> this feels really yeah, personal. Be a, yeah. be a good winner for Pete's sake. I think Hugo might have been a very competitive young man. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> So you think it's sarcastic when he says, great strategists sometimes nod, great blunders are often made. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he did. He took all kinds of pains to talk to us about Napoleon and his personality in the Battle of Waterloo and how in, in that section, what he's talking about is the dominion of God over all of the details of life. You can be as good a strategist as anyone else in the history of the world and still be at the mercy of providence. And so maybe that's the case here, too. Yeah, that's interesting, especially since Javert, I mean, I, we were just talking about not caricaturing him too much, but he is the representative of the law. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that things escape the notice of the law. The law is blind. Ooh. Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Or that there, like the fact that there is a power that can override the law. That even the representative of the law is not perfect in this mm-hmm. scene. There's something insufficient or off balance in it. Well, and he's been on about that from the beginning, that the law is actually flawed and wrong and incapable of doing the job it sets out to do. And that's, I mean, to be clear, that would be the human, the human interpretation of the law, right? Of course, but it, but also he's on about, he's on about the idea that human beings can't actually approximate the divine law and that any attempt to do so leads to grievous error, Mm. that the only thing that can actually give us a sense of how the law of God operates is on the human plane to temper it with mercy because God's law is not blind. God is not blind, but the human law is. This might be way off base, but I was actually thinking about Kierkegaard's discussion in Fear and Trembling of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac and how what God actually commands Abraham to do is something that's contra the law. Yeah, And I mean, it was a time before the law was actually given, but I mean, there's that moment where you stand face to face with God, right? And the law is not enough to to save you. Hmm. Well, ladies, this was a fantastic discussion. Thank you for your thoughts as ever. And thank you listeners for joining us on our trek through Les Miserables. Um, I'm not feeling miserable. I think that was pretty fun. If we get more plot sections like this, it's going to be okay. Yeah, I'm not feeling miserable. Also, we're making great progress through this book. Has anyone (laughs) taken a look at the spine of their book to see how far we are? Not as far as that I t- want to be. This amount of reading took us like a year when we were doing Right. <laughs> We've really improved our pacing. I have to say that. And we're not to the halfway point, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I think we're making great progress. I'm proud of us. Me too. Well, once more into the breach, dear friends. Thank you all for being with us. And we will see you next time on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. 
How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.